years ago, I had the privilege of meeting uh, this guy named Rick McFarlane at Karis. And man, just fell in love with the guy. I mean, oh my goodness, what a precious man of God. And then I got to know Joanne. And, and uh, so over the years, we've just really had some great fellowship. Every time I would come to town, we'd make sure we'd have lunch together and, and all of that. Really look forward to it. But uh, isn't it amazing what God is doing with River Rock Church? I mean, this is absolutely phenomenal. Every time I come back here, it's, it's like you guys are blowing the doors out. And, and uh, God's just doing such great things. And I'm just so, uh, so privileged, feel so honored to just be here and have this time with you today. Um, but anyway, uh, I do, uh, I want to uh, greet you for my wife, Beverly. Uh, Beverly's usually with me, but she's not on this trip. Uh, she's an ordained minister in her own right. Matter of fact, this church, we are, both of us are missionaries to River Rock Church. And uh, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for standing with us because all missionaries have to have those that stand with them because it's a team deal. And without you, uh, what God's called us to do in the nations would not happen. And so uh, just want to give you a good report. Things are going very well. Uh, Go to Nations just celebrated their uh, 40th anniversary. I did not start the ministry. A gentleman in Jacksonville, Florida started the ministry. That's why our headquarters is in Jacksonville, Florida. It's a real spiritual deal. But anyway, <laughs> but for the last 21 years, going on 22 years now, I've been the president of Go To Nations. And out of its 40 years, I've been a missionary with them for 37. So I was almost there from the beginning. Uh, but this last year was phenomenal. Uh, 2021, even in the midst of COVID and many of the nations locked down, it was for the first time in 40 years that we ministered to over half a million people. And so we just thank God for that. And out of that half a million people, 227,000 of them accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So anyway, so God's doing some awesome work. Um, we've, we've ministered now in 106 nations. And uh, right now, God is just opening up the continent of Africa you want to know my heart, my heart is really among what we call emerging Christian nations. These are nations that uh, we've been going to for almost not just us, but I'm talking about the body of Christ, have been going to these nations, some of them for over 100 years. A lot of these are in, you know, Central South America, uh, Africa, um, you know, even the Soviet Union, we, the former Soviet Union, uh, Uh, It's amazing what happened in the 90s there. People don't realize it, but it was one of the greatest church planting movements in modern history. If you could just imagine a whole, you know, the Soviet Union is 11 time zones. I don't know if you knew that, but it's it's a good portion of the planet. And so all of that was closed. You know, the, the Eastern Bloc was closed. And then you saw the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, and uh, then you saw in 92 the fall of communism and, uh, in, in, in that part of the world and over 300 million people opened up to the gospel and God allowed us to be one of the major uh, funnels to funnel ministers into the former Soviet Union. Just through our ministry we saw over 1 million people come to Christ and 1,000 churches planted in a 10 year period. And so it's just, just a tremendous uh, journey that we have been on. But uh, now, I believe, if we're going to 
complete the Great Commission, one of the things that's got to happen is that we've got to go back and target these countries that we have been taking the gospel to all of these years and raise them up as a missionary sending force in their own right. And so my heart is to go into these nations and transform them from having a mindset of being the mission field and turning them into a major missionary force. And so we're having some tremendous uh, success. I never dreamed in my greatest, uh, you know, my greatest dreams, I never, uh, I put together a whole series of teachings, which I'm, some of them I'm going to be doing at Karis this week, uh, on how to take a local church and raise it up to be a Great Commission missions church. Well, I just came back from Africa 20 days, a 20-day period. Uh, I uh, was in three countries, eight cities, and met with 40 of the top Christian leaders in that part of the world. The end of that, we established uh, partnerships with three of the most powerful ministries in East Africa, and they have asked us to train 51,200 churches on how to become Great Commission missionary sending churches to the world. See, I believe that we're going to see a major, major move. I'm going to tell you, we've got a lot of things here that are not going right. But I am telling you, God is raising up the nations for the harvest. I truly believe, I, 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 you know, I didn't say this in the first service, well, I didn't say any of this in the first service. But anyway, um, but I believe about five years ago, I, I felt like the Lord spoke to me and said, I'm going to use Africa to take back Europe. Amen. And so, um, uh, anyway, it's, it was a tremendous trip. And so, but what it did, it laid out a good five to ten years worth of work. So, uh, I did bring a couple of things with me that are out on the table, just two things. One is a book that I wrote in 2014. It's got a little bit of uh, mileage on it. But um, uh, back in about probably 2010, actually before that, but it really, I mean, I couldn't ignore this anymore. But the Lord was really dealing with my heart about America because I just had such a burden realizing that we were going the wrong way in so many different aspects when it came to the American church. The problem is, is that the very things that I was so concerned about we were in the midst of a church movement, if I can say, that was actually promoting the things that I was concerned about. And so as I took these things to the Lord, I, I shared this in a pastor's conference, um, and uh, just a small pastor's conference. There was probably about 40, 50 pastors there. And uh, it just, the message resonated with a lot of the church movements, especially the Latino Assemblies of God. Even though I'm not assembly, I'm not, that's not my credentials, but just like the Latino Assemblies of God almost around the world opened up to me. And um, so I was starting to be invited to their conferences. I ended up in their national conference in Miami one year. And um, I don't know if you know this, but all, most of the Latino churches in South Florida the pastors are Puerto Rican. They came from Puerto Rico. And so then I started getting all of these invitations to Puerto Rico. I think I ended up doing like six conferences in just a few months there in Puerto Rico. But it was all about bringing an awakening to the church. 
and know how to deal with a post-Christian culture. Whether you know it or not, you do not live in a Christian nation anymore. We are no longer considered a Christian nation. And you have to know how to deal with a post-Christian culture. So I wrote this book. Well, I didn't. The Lord asked me to write it. I was actually getting so frustrated because none of our national leaders would address these things. Well, I know why they wouldn't address them. Because if they did, then they would take on the persecution of, of the, you know, the, the gay movement. Every, all, the, all that we're seeing happen today, they would have had to deal with those things. And they didn't want to deal with those things because their ministry was going great. Their churches were thriving. Their books were selling. And so why should we stir up the waters? And so I said, God, it's, I'm very frustrated about this. And he says, yeah, I've been talk, I, I want to talk to you about that. I want you to write a book about it. And I said, no, I'm not going to write a book. You know, very obedient servant of God here. But, uh, you know, I said, I'm not going to write a book. You need to have some of those other guys write the book. Nobody knows me. And he says, no, I want you to write it, and I want you to write it from a global missions perspective. And I said, okay, Lord, I'm still not going to write it. And so finally, he sent a prophetess from uh, Daytona Beach up to my office. She stuck her little finger in my face and said, how long are you going to disobey God? So I wrote the book. <laughs> but anyway, there's, there's many things in here that I think, well, just about, we are so past everything I wrote in this book, and this book was considered radical when I wrote it. And just to be honest, a lot of pastors did not like me writing this book. Because it was all about, I, uh, because I talk about the professionalism that has come into the church. And I've talked about the demonic competition between churches. There's so many things that I, I, I spoke about in here that churches didn't, I mean, the major pastors did not want to hear because, you know, uh, you know their, their Instagram following was going off the chart. And they didn't want anything to kind of, you know, tear that up. And so anyway, um, that, that's out there. But I do talk about four faulty gospels that's preached in America on a weekly basis. I also talk about four uh, foundational pillars that we have to have to have a strong church. And all four of those have eroded away in America. So if you're interested, that book is out there. I also have just one CD. Uh, and this CD, it kind of goes along with this. It's called War on Christianity. I, you must realize that, we're try, that today our society is really trying to eradicate Christianity. And it's bullying us into accepting their ways of life and their belief system, even though it goes directly against the Bible. And so, but what, uh, the reason that I... Uh, I recorded this message is because our problems, you have to understand that in any nation, the spiritual backbone of any nation is the church. If you don't like what's happening in the country, all you got to do is look at the church. See, it's been the church's problem. The reason the church has been silent, the path that the church has taken has created what we have in America today. Now, let me give you an example. You will never, because I know some of, you know, we're all believing, you know, we're going to take America back. We're going to, you know, for Jesus and all that stuff. Well, let me just give you uh, a tidbit of information. You will never have a Christian nation 
America will never be a Christian nation until the church adheres to a Christian worldview. I want you to hear me. Well, I'm going to tell you, we got whole denominations in America today that accept homosexuality, they accept abortion, they accept same-sex marriages, all the things that literally destroy a country and destroy uh, Christianity. And uh, if we're bullied into taking up or accepting, or what's even worse is that we have a movement in America amongst the major leaders, not all of them, but most of them, the major leaders, is they just don't want to get involved. They don't want to address any of these issues. Matter of fact, we've got nationally known speakers that's coming out right now and saying it's wrong. It's even wrong to address these things. We should just go preach salvation, just go preach the gospel and not get involved in politics, not get involved in abortion. Don't, don't get involved in all these issues. Well, you better get involved because Jesus talked about all of them. The Bible talks about all of these. And the church is to help set the standard by which Christians live. But what we have here is that we've just stuck our head in the sand. And in many cases, we just act like it's, it's non-existent. Now, let me give you a statistic here. It may shake you up a little bit. And that is, when I say a Christian worldview, a lot of people, you've heard that term, but you probably don't know what it means. On the back of this little brochure, I have eight questions. If you can answer yes to all eight of those questions, you probably have a Christian worldview. But in a nutshell, what a Christian worldview is, is that you live according to the Bible. That's what it means. You live according to the principles and the statutes that are laid out in the Bible. Well, let me tell you, in the Protestant churches in America, and when I say Protestant, I'm including the charismatic, full gospel, Protestant, evangelical churches in America, the attenders of those churches, because there was a survey put out by George Barner Research Firm, they said the attenders of the Protestant and charismatic churches in America, only 17% adhere to a Christian worldview. What that means is, is they come to church, they feel like they've got a place, they feel like they've got some things that, that minister to their life, and they're willing to acknowledge and listen to the sermons until they want to do something that goes against the Bible, and at that point, they just go ahead and do what they want to. You know, you want an example, it would be uh, sex before marriage. It's amazing, you'd be shocked how many members in churches today that we got people that they come to church, they're members of the church, they're not even married. They're just living together. That's just a small example. I'm, I'm, not, con I'm not condemning anyone. I'm just saying that we do not preach the truth. All we want to do in many cases, we have fallen into this category where we just want to preach what will make people happy and they will come back next week and so it's all about bottoms in the seats rather than bringing the truth to people that sets them free praise the Lord and raises up disciples and so anyway how are we going to get back to a Christian worldview well there's four things that's on this message that I deal with one of them is 
committed to, a, to God's standard. God has a standard in which we live by. Another thing is student of the words. We are told that this generation is one of the most illiterate generations in almost history when it comes to the word. Why? We don't have, we don't have Bible studies anymore. We don't teach the Bible in church. We've got a 20-minute feel-good message. <laughs> Brother, this is going a little bit different than what I thought, you know. So anyway. Anyway, what, I want, what I'd love for you to do is pick up one of these messages, listen to the message, and th- you will get one of these. And I want you to go home and pray over those four areas because I believe that God is going to speak to your heart on the adjustment that you need to make the four areas committed to His standard, student of His Word, hunger for His presence, where I deal with worship and prayer, and then the last one focused on God's mission. You take, the, you take missions out of uh, the life of the church, then we've already lost. Amen. So anyway, those things are out there and help yourself to them. I'm going to preach a message this morning called Through the Eyes of Redemption. Through the Eyes of Redemption. And you may be sitting there thinking, well, we've got a missionary up here. He's going to, he's going to preach on uh, his ministry, missions ministry. No, that's not really the case. What I'm going to do is preach on your missions ministry. Amen. Our missions ministry is the body of Christ together. Now, when it comes to missions, it is one of the most misunderstood subjects in the body of Christ today. Matter of fact, let me do just a, a quick little demonstration here and that shows you the type of challenge. I need three people to run up here just as fast as you can. Volunteer. One, two. Oh, gosh. I should have known. Okay. All right. I need one more. One more. Okay. All right. Shoulder to shoulder. Okay, okay, you, you hold yes. that up. Oh, gosh, why did I do that? <laughs> Believers? Okay, I got a feeling I'm going to regret this. <laughs> Hallelujah. Now, hold them up all straight together. Okay, now here's what I want. Let's all read. you all see this? Okay, let's all read it together. Believers, Great Commission, call. The thing that I want you to understand is that every person that accepts Jesus Christ, I I teach a whole seminar on this, show you from Scripture, when you accept Jesus, you are automatically, immediately, not 10 years later, immediately called into the Great Commission ministry. Amen. You were given the ministry of reconciliation. What is the ministry of reconciliation? It means that God wants to use your life to reconcile this lost world back to its creator. That is known historically as the Great Commission. Why do we say Great Commission? Because it's the only mission that Jesus gave us as the church. So here's what I want you to see. What has happened though is that we have taken out the Great Commission and we have moved it over to the side... A little further. A little further. A little further, yeah. Okay. And so we, in the church, we've got the Great Commission. Uh, most people see it as a special call to a chosen few. And matter of fact, it is also considered an extracurricular activity in the church. 
In other words, if we can do all, get all the stuff we want to do in the church, if we got time, we may consider having a missions program or, you know, be involved in Great, in, uh, great Commission ministry. But I want you to see what it's just done. What it has just done by taking that approach is that we have disconnected the believer from their calling. This is why the church, in most cases, the congregations are in the state that they're in. Matter of fact, I can tell you, I go, I'm in probably in a different church every weekend almost, and it's amazing to me how many Christians are frustrated because they don't know their purpose. Now, you cannot go on what I say today and compare it to this church. Because this church is one of the most on fire, best organized, devil stomping churches that I know of. And so you get, I don't even know what he's talking about. That's because you're ignorant to what's really going on out there. This is not the typical church today. And so what we've got to do in this hour, come on back, Great Commission is that we've got to get the, the Great Commission placed back. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. And hook the believer back up to their Great Commission call. Amen? Amen. Well, give them a hand clap, will you? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I wish they had a little bit of fire in them. Amen. See, the whole task of completing the Great Commission is our central purpose as believers on this earth. Now, there's a lot. I mean, you know, missions is not simply a program in the church. It is literally the purpose of the church. Matter of fact, if you take the Great Commission out of your Bible, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a purpose for the church. Amen, because we will not have, we will not have that mandate. Now, let me, let me talk, ask this question here. What exactly is the Great Commission? You go, Brother Jerry, I mean, isn't that getting kind of elementary? You know, you're asking us, why are you asking us what's the Great Commission? The reason I'm asking you is, again, go back to George Barna, Christian research firm, in their, they have just come out with new research that shows that 83% of people attending churches cannot give you the scriptural definition of the Great Commission. They don't know what it is. Matter of fact, out of the 83 that doesn't know what it is, 51% of that 83 said they don't remember the last time they heard the words Great Commission said in their churches. And so this is how far we have come as far as the very purpose of the church. You know, if you take, if you take, uh, uh, if I ask you the question, well, let me put it this way. If you ask biblical scholars, matter of fact, we do have, this is being uh, live streamed today, and I know there's people watching, so please, I, I want to just welcome you here with us today. Thank you for joining us. But yeah, amen. Give them a hand clap. <laughs> Praise the Lord. We love y'all. But if you ask Bible theologians, what is the central theme, the main central theme of the Bible? 
If I asked many of you here, I'm sure that I would get several different questions. But if you ask Bible theologians, by far, the number one answer that you're going to get is that it's about redemption. It's about redemption. From Genesis to Revelations, the Bible is all about redemption. Matter of fact, in, in uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 8, it tells us that in the mind of God, Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world. In other words, redemption was for mankind was in the heart of God before creation. Wow. Also, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is where after Adam and Eve had sinned and committed high treason against the Lord, the Lord declared in the garden, before they ever left the garden, God addressed the devil. And he prophesied to the devil, he says, there is one coming. There is a redeemer coming. Matter of fact, he basically, in, in just my, my you know, prayer phase words here, you got it now, devil, but there's one coming. And when he comes, he's going to break your power. And so we see again, all the way back in the book of Genesis, that redemption has always been on the heart of God. Now, if God has had redemption in His heart even before creation, then what is redemption? Well, let me give you my simplest definition that I can think of. Redemption is God's work of bringing Christ to a world that needs Him. Okay, then what is missions? Missions is God's work of bringing Christ to a world that needs Him through you. That's what missions is. Amen. And our mission is to bring that redemption to all mankind. When you understand, now listen to me, when you understand that the whole Bible is about redemption, then you will start looking at every scripture in a new way when you read it. Okay, now let me give you an example of that. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 10. I'm going to just take a chapter, Luke chapter 10, and I'm going to walk through this chapter and show you how when you start looking at the, these verses that you may have read for years, but I want you to see these verses through redemption. Luke chapter 10 verse 1, it says, The Lord appointed other seventy also and sent them two by two before His face, into every city and place, whether he himself would come. In other words, Jesus commissioned these disciples and sent them out into these cities before Jesus arrived to them. Again, this is all a part of God's plan of redemption. Look at verse 2, probably before they even got out of sight. Jesus said to them, he says, The harvest is great, but the labors are few. Pray ye to the Lord of the harvest that he might send labors into the harvest. Now I know you know that verse, but I just want to stop and say this because a lot of times, even in Bible school, when I bring this up, a lot of times the students, they understand the verse, they can almost even quote the verse, but they really didn't catch it. They're actually seeing something that is not there. And that is this. A lot of times we think this verse says, Pray to the Lord of the harvest, or pray to the Lord for the harvest. And that is not what this is saying. God is not telling us to pray for the harvest. What is He telling us to pray for? 
pray for the labors to go into the harvest. Because God knows that's what, the harvest is great, but the labors, that's the problem. From the day when Jesus was on the earth, the biggest problem was the lack of labors. And now, over 2,000 years later, it's still our biggest problem. It's the labors. Amen. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that He would send labors. In other words, Jesus has called us to pray that Christians would be raised up to answer the call to take the gospel to all the nations on earth. Now, I want you to drop down to verse 17. I'm going to kind of work through this. Because by the time we get to verse 17, the disciples had already, they're losing their focus. What's the focus? The focus is redemption for all mankind. But what are they all stirred up about? Well, what they're stirred up about and what they're excited about is that they have power over demons. Woohoo! You know, man, you should have seen us. Man, even the devils, man, we put them on the run, you know. They were all excited about this, so Jesus had to get them focused back on the harvest again. In verse 20, Jesus tells the disciples not to rejoice that demons are subject to them, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, I don't want you to miss this because there's something very important here that Jesus was trying to get across to them. Why? Because it's all about redemption of mankind. And so when he said to the disciples, he says, don't, you know, don't get all excited that you've got power over demons. Get excited that your names are written in heaven. What was Jesus trying to say? There is a whole world out there that is lost that nobody has ever brought the gospel to. And they haven't had an opportunity to get their names written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen? Amen. Then drop down to verse 25. Verse 25, which actually is the Pharisees are trying to set up a trap to get Jesus to say something wrong. And uh, so anyway, in verse 25, it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law, in other words, the Pharisees picked out what they thought was the most clever teacher to try to trick Jesus into saying something, This says, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? And he answered, the lawyer answered and said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Then Jesus replies, he says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, talking about the lawyer, said he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Well, let me stop right here for a moment. You must realize that the Pharisee lawyer didn't really want Jesus' wisdom concerning who was his neighbor. He could care less what Jesus thought about that. He was trying to trick Jesus on some type of technicality. But I'm telling you, in this buffer going back and forth between the lawyer and Jesus, Jesus finally got pretty fed up with it and he's had enough of this. So, at this point, because Jesus had enough of this, to get the focus back on the mission, in other words, redemption for all mankind, he tells a parable. It is the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
Now, I know you're all going, oh, brother, how many sermons do I got to listen to on the Good Samaritan? I probably already heard a dozen in my lifetime. Well, you haven't heard the one like I'm going to tell you today. Because this, there is a depth to this that we have missed in many occasions. The Good Samaritan is not just a parable about some guy doing good deeds, so you go do good deeds also, you know. That's usually what we teach. Well, that is true, and it's good, and and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a part of it. But you're missing the central theme of why he's telling the parable in the first place. He's trying to get them focused back on redemption. Amen. That's the whole purpose of this parable to start with. Matter of fact, what is a parable? Parable is a story. It doesn't have to necessarily be true. It can be a story that's made up. In other words, you're trying to illustrate something through a story to teach some principles or values or, you know, something that you want them to learn. Now, for them to do that, you need to tell a story that they can relate to. In other words, there's certain things like, oh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, I get that. And that's what Jesus is doing. Matter of fact, Jesus told several parables to teach life lessons. So if you drop down to verse 30, I'm going to read that parable to you, and then I'll go back and explain it. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. You ought to underline that, half dead, that is so important. A priest happened to be going by the same road, and when he saw the man, in other words, the one laying on the road half dead, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on the oil and wine. Then he put him, put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, which a labor's wages, that would be two days' wages, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Now, Jesus stops the parable, and he looks back at the lawyer. And he says to the lawyer, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? Now, why did Jesus ask that question? Because that's the question the lawyer asked Jesus. Okay, I told you this. Which one in this parable do you think was your neighbor? And so the lawyer answered Jesus and he said, said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, okay, you go and do likewise. Okay? Now that word likewise here actually means an exact duplication in kind. What Jesus was telling, not just the lawyer, but what Jesus is telling us through this parable is that I want you to see how the Samaritan responded to this situation and then I want you to do exactly, not just kind of like, but exactly do what that Samaritan did. 
Are you with me? Amen. Now, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to kind of uh, walk through this uh, parable with you and kind of explain it to you. First of all, Jesus said there was a man that was walking down this road. He was coming from Jerusalem and he was going down to Jericho. First of all, you have to understand that this is a trade route. Everybody knew about this route between Jerusalem and Jericho. And so there's a lot of people that are moving merchandise between these two cities on this trade route. That's why there were thieves there. Again, Jesus was trying to tell a story that everybody could relate to in those days. People knew that there were thieves. You had to be careful because there were thieves on that road between Jerusalem and Jericho. Next thing he tells us is that you got this man walking down this road, and there's a lot of probably single people that have walked down this road that the thieves didn't jump out. Probably wouldn't worth their time. But this guy, for some reason, and we don't know all the reasons, except Jesus says he was really dressed good. Because they said, what'd they go after? He didn't have any goods. He wasn't carrying anything. He just had very nice clothes on. And so as he was walking down through there, they saw this man probably... You know, wow, he's really dressed nice. He's probably rich. He's probably got some money on him too. I'm just, you know, follow me. And so he goes down this road. The thieves jump out. It says they took all of these fine clothes off of him, left him naked, and then they beat him until he was half dead. When he says half dead, what that means is, is the life is flowing out of him. And if somebody doesn't get to him soon, he is not going to live. See what Jesus was trying to get across in this parable. That man beat up on the side of the road, left naked, half dead. He represents hurting humanity. This is who this guy is. There are people all over the world that's never heard the gospel one time. They are spiritually naked. And if somebody doesn't get to them in time, they're not going to make it. They're going to die. That's who this man represents on the side of the road. See, every day, saints, every day, 150,000 people die. Out of that 150,000, 100,000 of them do not know Christ. In other words, 100,000 every day is just stepping off into eternal darkness. And out of that 100,000 dying every day without Christ, 45,000 of them never heard the gospel one time in clear and simple terms that they can understand. 45,000. See, I believe that Jesus was pointing out the seriousness of the situation. Matter of fact... He kept doing this all the time. This is why Jesus says, listen to me. You you tell me, this is in John chapter 4, verse 35. He says, you're going to tell me that it's four months and then the harvest? I'm telling you, the harvest, it says, lift up your eyes. In other words, one translation says, fix your eyes. It said, lift up your eyes. What does that mean? Jesus, first of all, wants to get our eyes off ourselves. Lift up your eyes. And then he says, fix them. 
In most translations, it uses the word look, but it literally means fix your eyes on the harvest. Why, Jesus? Because it's already ripe to harvest. You only have a certain amount of time here. You have to understand the clock is ticking. He's just like that man laying there bleeding and dying. And if somebody doesn't deal with this situation, he has no hope. I'm telling you, there are 3.15 billion people in the earth today that has never heard the gospel one time. They live in total darkness. They are spiritually naked. And that is not going to change until we catch hold of what Jesus is telling the church. Amen. Good preaching, Jerry. Hallelujah. Amen. I think I'm going to buy the CD. Do you guys make CDs? I don't know. Hallelujah. Now at this point in the parable, Jesus introduces three more characters. The first character is a saint. A saint. Now you have to understand, we would think saints are religious people that are very, you know, in tune with God and want to serve Jesus. But this priest, he comes walking down. And, and, and I'm sure at first he really didn't know what he was looking at. I mean, the guy was naked. Can you imagine a guy that's naked? He's probably covered with blood. I mean, they said he was almost dead. He's laying there lifeless. And the priest comes up on this guy. And all of a sudden, once he saw what it really was, huh, immediately his reaction was to go across the road and walk by on the other side. Why? Because there's something about us that if we don't want to deal with something, we feel like that if we can distance ourselves enough from it, we can actually kind of convince ourselves it's not really happening. Matter of fact, that's what's happening in America right now. Most ministers, they, they see what's going on in a way, but it scares them. They don't want to get involved. And so if we just act like it's not happening. Church, if we just not act like every day we're losing power to have any effect in this country. We're being bullied into a situation that we're sitting here and we won't say a word. Matter of fact, like I said earlier, we're even being told by national Christian leaders, don't get involved, don't stand up. And I'm here to tell you, if just one stands up, or a couple stands up, or a dozen, or a hundred in America, you know what will happen? Because the rest of the church is sitting here silent, the, 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 the crazy... Uh, What's going to happen is that this corrupt society is going to come down on them so hard, he, they will destroy their lives. They will destroy their ministries. They will destroy their marriages. They will put them under so much pressure. Why? Because it, it won't take one person, two persons, or just a hundred people. It's going to take the body of Christ to wake up in this hour. And become a unified voice for God. God's sitting there looking at this. All the way down through history. 
There has been those that they know if they stand up. They know if they say something, it may cost their life. And many of them gave their life just by telling the truth. It is time for the church to start speaking the truth again. Hallelujah. Then we got a Levite, another religious leader. He comes down the road. What does the Levite do? He does the exact same thing as the priest. Both of them saw the situation. Instead of responding to them the way Jesus wants us to, they distance themselves from it and act like they know nothing about it. I want to show you something. The priest and the Levites represent religious people. This is a message for the church saints. God is speaking to His church today through this parable. Amen. But then there's a third character. And he doesn't act like the other ones. He responded totally different than the religious people. Now, here's the deal, and this is my message. All of that was introduction. (laughs) Jesus said, I want you, you saw what the Samaritan did. I want you to go and do exactly what he did. The Samaritan did three things that God is calling us as Christians to do. The very first thing is the Samaritan dared to look now I'm going to tell you did we just pick up something (laughs) the Samaritan dared to look now this may seem like a small deal but this is huge I think it's the biggest out of the three and that is for you to dare to look because that changes everything See, they, if, if they stayed there and dared to look, it probably would have been a different outcome. But because they wouldn't look and went to the other side of the road, they acted like they didn't need to, to be a part of that or even existed. This is why I believe everyone ought to go on a short-term mission trip because it's going to change your perspective on a lot of things. Matter of fact, Job said this. Job in Job 31 verse 1, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. See, what you set your eyes on is what you will divert your attention to. What you dare to look at and set your eyes on, that's what you're going to get involved in. You know, sometimes I go to places and, and, uh, you know, I, I just have to be honest. They don't get a lot of truth. They get a feel-good message. It's kind of like, okay, I can come to this church and, you know, get, get in the worship. And there is an anointing there. And they can sit there and, you know, as I said to someone, they can get high on a little Jesus juice that will get them through the week, you know, without no transformation in their life. They feel good. They feel better about themselves when they walked out. You know, because we want them to come back. And so they feel better about themselves, but we're not helping them at all. You know, but boy, are the numbers growing. 
Oh, man. My Instagram page is going off the chart, man. I got so many followers. Amen. But it's not helping anybody here. I better get back behind this pulpit here for a moment. <laughs> Hallelujah. But you got to dare to look. And I've had people tell me, Jerry, I don't like you coming here. I'll tell you a quick story, John. This is just between me and you. <laughs> I had a guy come up to me one time, and he, he looked madder than a hornet. He walked up to me, and he says, I want to get one thing straight. I don't like you. And I said, oh, okay. He says, but God is telling me to give you this money. <laughs> he says, I've been trying to talk God out of it. He says, I don't really want to do it, but... To do it, I, to obey God, I got to do it. But I just want you to know, I don't like you. <laughs> he gave me this money. Well, I've preached in places where I've had people tell me, he said, Brother Jerry, I don't like you coming here and telling us all this stuff. I don't like you telling me how things really are. I don't want you to tell me. I don't want to, I don't want to see your pictures of starving babies and, and people worshiping false gods I don't want to hear about that stuff it doesn't make me feel good that's okay you, you don't have to listen to all that just go to the other side of the road that's all you got to do just go to the other side of the road and act like most Christians in America today with their head in the sand like nothing's going on at all that's all you got to do amen Hallelujah. But I am telling you, that's not who you are. Amen. That is not who this church is, praise God. Hallelujah. Praise God forevermore. You are sons and daughters of the King. You are great commissioned Christians. You are tongue-talking, Bible-stomping, kingdom-advancing, miracle-releasing believers that the world is crying out for right now. That's who you are, praise God. There's a world out there that's been waiting for 2,000 years for people like you. Amen. Hallelujah. Dare to look at hurting humanity, locally and globally. The second thing, the second thing that the Samaritan did is that he dared to get involved. He dared to get involved. Look at verse 34. It says, The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, Pouring in the oil and the wine. Like I said in the early service, there's a whole message just in that. In other words, he got involved. He got involved in this situation. God wants all of us to get involved with finishing the Great Commission. Now let me say this because I want you to catch this. Jesus knows that you have a life. Jesus knows that you have responsibilities and jobs and all of that. That Samaritan's no different. That Samaritan, can't you imagine? Just put yourself in his shoes. The Samaritan, he gets there and it says that he walked over there. Why? Because he dared to look. And because he dared to look, it's like, man, that really... Now that's an issue now. I know how to walk away if I don't look. But, oh my goodness, this is bad. This guy, he ain't going to last long if he doesn't get help. 
Maybe somebody else will be along soon. I don't see anybody. Uh, gosh, I got appointments. Don't you know he wasn't taking his donkey for a walk? I'm sure he had business to do. He probably had people down in Jericho. He probably had a time, at certain times he had to get there to meet with people. And here he is in the middle of this situation. I can't leave him. I'm here to tell you that you got a life. And God knows that. But don't ever think that God is going to stop from stepping into your schedule for His purposes. Do you hear me? Maybe it's not that convenient right now to support missionaries or to go on a mission trip or to be the vessel of God in any situation. Sometimes, man, that just doesn't fit into my schedule right now. I'm sure that's what the priest and the Levites said. See, that's what they said. This just doesn't fit into my plans for today. But finally, the the Samaritan goes, Oh, man, I can't leave him here. i got to take him. You know, we'll work it out somehow. Now, we don't know if the donkey, we don't know if he was taking goods to Jericho or if he was going to Jericho to pick up goods. It would have been one or the other. So we don't know if anything was on the donkey. If there was, then he would have had to take all his goods off, probably wrap it up in a blanket, throw it over his shoulder so that he could put the man on his donkey. If that's not the case, then he probably was riding the donkey. Even if he had nothing on there, he's going, oh my goodness, now I'm going to have to walk all the way to Jericho and put the man... See, I'm telling you, we are not going to get this thing done if we're not willing to put the will of God, the plan of God, and the purposes of God above our agendas and above what is the most pleasant for us. Matter of fact, we got to, oh man, don't don't throw anything at me. We're going to have to sacrifice. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Then the third thing, the last thing that the Samaritan did, is he dared to make a commitment until the task or the mission was finished. See, this wasn't just a token gift. You know, it's easy to, okay, I can just give a little money to that, make my conscience feel better. But in reality, that's not the way he went about this. He dared to look. And when he dared to look, then he dared. He made the decision, praise God. It might have not been easy, but he made the decision, I'm getting involved. Even though it was going to cost him. Even though he may have to sacrifice. Even though he may have to change his schedule a little bit. Or even his goals of what he was going to spend money on. But he chose to get involved. But then the third thing, not only did he chose to get involved, but he made the decision, I'm in this thing now until the mission is finished. So he loads a guy up on his donkey. He takes him down, finds a hotel, finds the hotel manager, brings him out, and he says, man, he says, I got a guy here. He really needs ministry. We got to get him in a room. So they get him inside the room. Then the Samaritan stayed with the man all night 
long and ministered to him until the next morning. That's what the Bible says. And at the next day, he still had to go to Jericho. See what I'm talking about to you today. We will not reach the world unless we partner together. We, not one person can do everything. Not one person has the ability to do everything. Amen. This has got to be a joint deal. So what does he do? He gets the hotel manager, gets him back out there, and he says, listen, guy, I still got to run down to Jericho. But here I want you to, we got a guy here. We've got to reach this guy. We have, we have, to, we have to be, if we're not here for him, he still may not make it. Please, listen, I'll give you some money. Maybe all he had. He says, but I'm going down to Jericho. He says, here, here's some money. Please take care of this guy. And when I come back, hopefully I'll have some more. And I'll help you in any expenses that you got. But if we work together here, we can save hurting humanity. Amen. Now, I wouldn't doubt. When I go to some place and minister, there is a certain anointing that's released in the house. And one thing that it does is many times it will pull up a missionary calling somebody that has been buried. And they've learned to live in that place. They're good people, they love Jesus, and they're a blessing. But they have suppressed many times. I've had people, some of them in their 60s. I've had them even in their 80s come up to me and say, You know what, Jerry? When I was 12 years old, God called me to be a missionary. I know it as well as I stand here talking to you. But I didn't do anything with it. I didn't guard it. And life took over. Now, let me say this, because I'm going to give the other side of the coin. I have seen missionaries come into congregations and almost put a guilt trip on you if you're not a missionary. Don't ever let that happen. Because not everybody's called to be missionaries. Matter of fact, again, if I had my way, what I believe would be the heart of God I believe God would tithe the church to the nations. So what that would mean is that 90% of the congregation is not called to be missionaries. 10% of a congregation like this is probably called to be a missionary. When you sit there year after year after year and no missionaries are coming out of the congregation, you need to stop and look at that. Because probably 10% were called but you have to understand there are some mission executives that believe that out of all the people that God calls to be missionaries, only 5% ever answer the call. Most of it is because missions really isn't promoted that much in the church. And 90% of all charismatic churches have no process for people that want to be missionaries in their congregation. See, we've got some work to do to get this changed. 
So, but you sit here and you say, I don't, I had a woman, she was 82 years old that came up to me one time, John, and she looked at me and she said, you know what? She says, today is the first time I feel like I've had peace in my heart for years. And I said, why? She says, because of your message. And I said, well, what did I say? She says, well, it's not what you said. What you said set me free. But another missionary came in and put this guilt trip on me like, you know, if you're not a missionary, you're really not doing anything for God. And she says, I've been carrying that for years. And she says, I feel like I don't love God because I, want to, I don't want to become a missionary. I remember I looked right at her and I said, did God call you to be a missionary? She says, no, I don't think so. I, I've never, I've, I've laid my life out before God many times because I, I want to get out of this guilt. And I said, do you give to missions? She says, oh yeah, I'm a strong supporter of missions. And I said, well, then you're doing what God called you to do. See, there's only two groups in this whole sanctuary this morning. One, the Bible calls sent ones. That's where we get the word missionary, because the word sent one in the Greek is apostle, but in the Latin it's missio. That's where we get the English word missionary. So you're either a missionary here today, or you, which would be a sent one, according to Romans chapter 10, verse 15, or you are a sender. Now, which one's the most important? See, the call of God on your life to missions. Not everybody's called to be a missionary, but everybody's called to missions. Okay? Somewhere you're called to missions in whatever role. But listen to me. If you're called to be a sender, that's just as important as what I'm doing. As a sent one. Amen. And what I'm doing is just as important as what you're doing as a sender. They're equally important. And let me tell you, we will have no results unless both of them are clicking. You know, we, it's amazing what we can do in the world. Our potential, we're not even starting to scratch it. Do you know how much goes to missions out of the American church on an annual basis? I'm talking about all monies in all churches in America. 2%. 98%. This is the way the survey wrote it. They said 98% is spent on internal operations. That means that the church spends 98% of everything taken in on themselves. And 2% we're using to reach the world. Now, let me tell you something else. To become a missionary, you've got to be a level 10. A level 10 is up here. Zero to 10, that's all there is. You've got to be a level 10 when it comes to your commitment. Why? Because you can't just have one foot on one side of the fence and one on the other and go. You've got to be all in. You've got to be a level 10. But guess what? We require the missionary to be a level 10 while the senders are sitting back here on a level 1 and 2. When in reality, now again, I know the numbers here are so much higher. I'm one of your missionaries. My wife is one of your missionaries. 
It is awesome what this church does for missions. But I'm not here just to talk to you. I'm here to impart something in you that you're going to carry and take to the rest of the body of Christ. Because if all of this is is a message, I've wasted my time. No, God wants to bring impartation in your heart so that you rise up to a level of commitment that becomes an example to everyone around you. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Well, praise God. I'm out of time. God bless you all. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Williamson. Did that not encourage you? I hope it pricked your heart, made you start thinking, you know what? I need to do more. I mean, it, it challenged me. Both services just need to do more. So let's, while, we're, while we spend some time in worship, just allow God to minister to your heart and find out where you can, can pitch in. Right where you, If God is calling you to missions, you need to be submitted to that in your heart. Amen. Hi, church family. Um, during Jerry Williams, during his message, I just heard rally the church, reach the nations. And I just sense God is telling us, those watching online and all of us in here, that we, we stir up the church. We tell them what he just told us, that you are called to missions. This is what you do. You're a missionary. Whether you're sending people or whether you're going, and whether you go to Karis or other churches, whether it's Lawson Produce Church or Jeremy Pearson's church, but like just encouraging other believers that he just wants us to stir each other up. Like, hey, did you know you're called to missions? You're called to missions. You, you, either you're sending or you're going. And that as, we're, and as we go or as we're sent, that together we're going to reach the nations. As we rally all the, like, what if all of the churches in Colorado Springs got together? Like Mario Murillo, but it was just a constant thing. Like when Mario Murillo came with the Ten Crusade, that was just a little taste of it. But what if we stirred each other up constantly? Like, hey, let's go out together. Let's go reach the nations. Let's go reach Colorado Springs and the ends of the earth together. And so I'd just like to pray for you guys and just impart that to you. That I just speak that there is people who are being called to be sent. And I just, you know right now in your heart if you're called to missions. You just know. God's been dealing with you. This whole worship service, the whole message. And God's been dealing with you if you're called to send. And you're just going to step out in it. And I'm just speaking a boldness over your mouth to talk to other believers and encourage them. And to not be afraid to step out and to just go for it. And that together, not on your own, you're not just going to go out there and change the world by yourself. But together with the rest of the body, you're going to change this nation, the nations, all the nations. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Just receive it. I was reading in Jeremiah 45, and he's talking to Burak in this scripture. Burak means blessed one. He's encouraging Burak to press in. And Burak is you guys, you're the body of Christ, to press in to what God has for you. And it says in the word of God, seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. Seek what God is stirring inside you right now. What is that thing that God wants you to do next? And then this next season. So I just want to pray over that. I just speak to the blessed one here, Birak, God. I speak uh, boldness, courage, God. I speak to those teachers, those prophets, those evangelists, God. Right now I speak life and I speak purpose into that. And I speak vision into that and multiplication into that in the name of Jesus. 
just step out, take that next step of faith, because that next step of faith is going to be somebody's blessing, somebody's provision, somebody's multiplication. So I just speak that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. Isaiah 43, 19. Do not remember the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. How many want the new and the now? You see, the new is what God has already provided for you. The now is up to you. Too many have been thinking the now is up to God. No, the now is up to you. Brother Jerry gave us a a fresh word. That's what the word new in Hebrew means, fresh. He gave us a fresh word. Now it's up to you what you're going to do with that word. You see, you can't embrace the new and the now if you're still holding on to the past, the old, the formal things, the old way of thinking, the old methods, the old strategy of how we do church and how we do missions. You, you can't embrace that or hold on that and embrace the new and the now. Why? Because God wants to do something fresh. There's a fresh anointing. There's a fresh oil. There's fresh revelation. There's fresh perspective for every one of us here today. But you can't Embrace the new and the now and leave this church and live in the old. Amen. God wants to do something new for you today. And now it's up to you to make that choice. Father, I thank you for the fresh word, the fresh anointing. And Lord, I just impart that to every believer here today. Thank you, Lord, that we're not going to be satisfied with the stale bread that we've been eating or partaking from. But, Lord, we're going to get that fresh-baked manna from heaven every day and live in it, praise God. Lord, and fulfill the mission that you've given us in Jesus' name. Amen.